While you're turning to Luke 17, I'll remind you we've still got space in the kids' gym. If you do need to go back there, you'll hear the service back there, the sermon. You could also worship out here in the hallway if you need a little more quiet and solitude, a little less going on. Also, when I pray this morning for the preaching of God's Word, I'll also mention a number of people in our congregation who are sick or uh, uh, pregnant, about to have babies. If you would keep them in your prayers, uh, they would greatly appreciate it. Let me ask you now if you would stand as I read aloud from the Word of God, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, then you must forgive him. Would you please be seated and would you join me then in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask that your word, well, we know that your word will not come back void. That your word, by the work of your spirit, will be productive in a spiritual sense in our hearts. And so we ask, Lord God, that you would begin that work and continue that work by your spirit. Do that this morning in our presence. We ask that you would sanctify us by this, your word, that you would convict us of your sin, of our sin, not of your sin, of our sin, and that you would convince us of the righteousness of Christ. We ask our Father that you would be caring for those in our congregation who are in need this week. We pray for Sarah Beth Capusta as she prepares to have her baby this week. We pray that that would be a safe delivery, that you would protect her and Marigold, that new daughter about to be born. We ask, Lord God, for those who are sick, especially with COVID. We think of uh, John and Kate Peters and their children and them as they are also suffering with the challenge of a new home that has various unforeseen problems. We ask that you would provide them the means necessary, Lord, to solve those issues in due time. We pray for Aaron and Nancy Borse as they, uh, Aaron has COVID. We pray that Nancy would not be sick, and we pray that Aaron would recover quickly. I pray for my own family who is at home sick. I pray that you would help them to recover in due time that you would protect others who are sick at this time. We pray for Rick and Don Ulmer, that you would help them to return safely from the West Coast as they try and figure out how to return home. And we pray for Grace Williamson as she thinks about the next season in her life. We pray that you would help her, that you would guide her, and that you would give her wisdom in all of her decisions. We thank you for her time here. Lord God, we ask that you hear us as we pray. And we ask especially that you would be here with us as we look together at your word. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, that we ask all of this. Amen. Well, you know, often in the Gospels as Jesus speaks, he can sometimes use very severe language, very severe language in his speaking. And, and this has led 
many people to suppose that Jesus uses hyperbole and that He uses it often. Now, hyperbole, you know, is a deliberate, intentional exaggeration to make a point. For instance, if somebody would say, this sermon is so boring that I could die. Okay, that's hyperbole. No one here has ever said that, of course. But that would be hyperbole, a deliberate exaggeration for emphasizing the point that you find this sermon to be boring. Okay? Jesus says many things that people have chalked up to hyperbole, like this. If your eye causes you to sin, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Or, faith like a mustard seed can move mountains. Or, the passage that we have this morning. It would be better for you, instead of causing another one to sin, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea. This morning, I want to tell you a little secret, okay? I don't believe that Jesus uses much hyperbole. I don't think He does. And I don't think that the passage this morning is a hyperbolic statement of Jesus. You see, here's why I believe that. I think it would be easy for us to escape the seriousness and the intensity of Christ's words if we were to say, well, that's just a deliberate exaggeration of Jesus. He's trying to make a point it would actually be a lot harder for us if Jesus actually meant that it would be better for us a millstone hung around our neck and us be cast into the sea than for us to cause another person to sin. And yet, I believe that's exactly what Jesus means. I believe it's exactly what He means in this passage. You see, I believe Jesus intends to communicate the seriousness of sin. And it is more serious than you ever imagined. And so Jesus makes His point in this passage. And this morning, as we talk about the seriousness of sin, see three things that Jesus emphasizes as He talks about that seriousness the temptation to sin, the rebuke of sin, and then the forgiveness of sin. And those are the things that we'll talk about this morning as we look at this passage. Now, if you're wondering, okay, what what should I hope to get out of this sermon? Let me say two things, okay? We should hope by by the end of the morning that for all of us who have trusted the Lord Jesus by faith, two things would be true of us. We would have a greater appreciation for the gospel because we see the seriousness of sin, and we would have in our hearts a greater hatred for sin. We would see it to be so serious and so heinous and so troubling that we would be convicted of the filth, of the wretchedness, and of the danger of our own sin. Okay, so that's where we're going. As Jesus begins this morning talking about the seriousness of sin, He begins by talking about first the the subject of temptation. And the word that He uses for temptation, the Greek word is scandala, from which we get our English, the, the scandalous or a scandal. And it means to entrap or to ensnare, right? And you know what a snare is. A snare is a little a trap that's laid for an animal, and the animal that walks unknowingly upon it is trapped. 
is wrapped up by it. It cannot escape. It's the word that is used here this morning as Jesus speaks. And he says temptations, scandalous, snares, traps to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. And again, that word is repeated twice in the first verse. Woe to the one through whom scandala comes. Woe to the one through whom snares and traps come. Now, as Jesus begins speaking about the serious nature of sin, you can hear what He's saying. His hearers recognized the fact that there was temptation around every corner. They lived it every day of their lives. They were tempted every step of the way, as we also are tempted. And they knew that temptation in this world was all but a guarantee. For the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, has been given by our God freedom during this present age to tempt. And so he roams around like a a prowling lion seeking whom he might devour. But the warning from Jesus is inasmuch as Satan himself is moving to tempt the people of God, woe to you. And that word is a word of great grief. Woe to you through whom those temptations come. Now, as the audience around Jesus was sitting and listening to Him, they might have thought this question, or they might have even asked it aloud, Jesus, how serious is it? I mean, how really dangerous is it? And the temptation to sin, how greatly would you warn us? And to that, Jesus gives verse 2. He says in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. You see what Jesus is saying? The answer is very simple. How serious is sin and the temptation to sin? Well, let me ask you this question. What is the most serious thing you could conceive of? It's more serious than that. What's the most serious thing you could conceive of? I think for most people, it would be death, right? You rack your brain, you think, what's the most serious thing I ever could conceive of in my mind? It would be death. And Jesus gives an example not just of death, but an extreme death, right? Millstone is that stone that a donkey or a horse or an ox would turn a big old millstone for the crushing of the wheat or the crushing of the grain. A typical millstone was maybe a thousand pounds, okay? It would be better for you to have a thousand-pound stone tied around your neck, cast into the sea, and drowned and died than for you to be involved in tempting one of these to sin. See, it's Jesus' way of communicating to us. It is more serious than the most serious thing that you could conceive of. That's how serious is the temptation to sin. Now, as I was looking at this passage, I began thinking in my mind, okay, What does that look like? How do we often fail in this? What does it look like, especially for Christians, when we tempt other Christians to sin? Let me give you a few examples, okay? And the passage specifically mentions little ones. You heard it in verse 2. Woe to you, tempt one of these little ones to sin. I think when Jesus says little ones, he's speaking like the Apostle Paul. When he speaks about children in the faith, I think he's speaking about those who are young in their belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
whether they are a seeker, whether they have recently converted, whether they're exploring the gospel of the Lord Jesus, whether they are young children or old, okay? Woe to you who causes one of them to sin. Now, let me tell you some of the ways that we are in danger of doing that. First of all, we're in danger of doing that when we do the opposite of this passage. And that is, Jesus is saying sin is so serious that you best be on your guard concerning the nature of sin. The opposite, uh, opposite of that is when we diminish the seriousness of sin, okay? And here's one way we do that. Somebody comes to you and they say, I'm really convicted. I have broken the law of God. I feel it in my heart and I must repent of it. It is burning me up inside, right? Here's a danger. If you respond to that person, well, don't beat yourself up over it. Really not that big of a deal, okay? Diminishing the nature of sin and what we're doing when we do that is we're laying a snare, a trap, that the next time they're tempted by that sin, they have that little voice in their head that says, well, that that well-meaning Christian who told me it really wasn't a big deal, you're entrapping them in sin. That's a warning that Jesus gives. A second way we might do this is by involving them in our own sin. And Christians are often guilty of this. Any number of sins, from as minor to the uh, gossip, to as major as the sexual sins that Paul mentions in the epistles. Okay? I think the third way that Christians can do this, tempt others to sin, is through hypocrisy. And hypocrisy we're warned of again and again by the Apostle Paul and Peter in their letters to the churches. And it looks like this. A new believer in Christ being wooed by the gospel. The Spirit is working in their hearts. And then they look at the Christians around them and they say, wait a second. They say one thing, but they do another thing. Is this really, truly a work of God? Or is there something else that's going on, okay? And, and they are tempted to the sin of unbelief. Jesus says, woe to you who tempt others. Woe to you who tempt others in sin. It would be better for you a millstone hung around your neck. That's the first thing that Jesus mentions as he speaks about the seriousness of sin. Now look, he goes on. And in verse 3, he says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And this is the second thing that Jesus emphasizes when he talks about the serious nature of sin. Rebuke him. The word rebuke is the Greek word epitomao, okay? Epitomao, and it means to bring a censure against somebody. It means, it's the same word that would be used in court, to bring a charge against another person. It is a very serious word. It's meant to be like, oh, did Jesus really just say that? Okay. It is a spiritual smack in the face. Okay. A wake-up call. A very serious accusation against another. Okay. Jesus says, if your brother or sister in Christ sins, rebuke them. Rebuke them. As we think about this second charge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me share with you, if you've ever considered reading on the subject of sin, you probably know that the chief work in all of the last 2,000 years concerning the nature of sin is John Owen's mortification of sin, okay? Nothing comes even close to John Owen's work. 
And as he's speaking about sin in that work, he says that the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all of their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. When I read that, I was thinking, okay, Owen exhorts his hearers to make it their business every day of their lives to mortify the indwelling power of sin. And I'll tell you the truth, if we're called to live the Christian life together, then it could be also said that the Christian ought to make it their business every day of their life to rebuke their brothers and sisters in Christ and to help them in the mortification of the indwelling sin within them. If the Christian life is as Christ describes it, if it is as Paul exhorts or Peter exhorts in the epistles, if it is meant to be lived in community, then the seriousness to which Owen speaks of the nature of sin ought to be applied to our brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Now, let me say, I I don't think that we do this, okay? And we'll, we'll talk about why we don't do this, but let me also speak to why this is important. Why is it important that we're involved actively in rebuking one another? I think one of the things that could be said is, as we look at the nature of sin Paul describes in Romans 3, we find out that the nature of sin is much greater and broader than we could conceive of. In Romans chapter 3, Paul begins by saying, there is no one righteous, no, not one. And if that was all he said about sin, we would know that sin has a judicial category. It makes us unrighteous. And for there to be any hope for us, we must be made righteous. But Paul doesn't stop there. He adds to his description of sin, there is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God in their eyes. You see, we are called to rebuking one another because the nature of sin is not just a judicial category. Sin is a sickness. It is a delusion. It is a deception of the heart. It is a darkness which hides within. It parades as a medicine when it's actually the thing that kills us. It presents itself as being good when it is actually evil. It deceives the human heart and it hides, waiting That's why God said in Genesis chapter 4, sin is crouching at your door, its desire is for you, and it will consume you. That is the nature of sin, and you see, if that is the nature of sin, then we lack the ability often in us to be able to perceive it, because it hides in the recesses of the heart. And it is in the innermost parts of our being. And the Spirit of God is working within us, but you know what? The Spirit of God is also working in those around us. And they often perceive the things that we do not. And so godly rebuke from one Christian to another is absolutely necessary for the living of the Christian life. I mentioned just a second ago that I don't believe that we do this, right? And I don't think we do this because we live in a largely individualistic society, okay? And even if we conceive of the serious nature of sin, and even if we understand that we have sin in our own hearts, we likely struggle with what I think is biblical rebuke. Because here's what we think. My sin is my sin, 
and your sin is your sin, and their sin is their sin, and we don't talk about those things, okay? I have my sin, but I want you to talk about my sin, and I'm not going to talk about your sin, okay? Because we conceive of these things as being our things. And other people aren't supposed to speak into our things. But the Bible exhorts and encourages Christians to have a communal life in which godly rebuke is being shared from one Christian to another because of the nature of sin. I'll put it to you like this. As a pastor, I often get questions from people. How do I confront another Christian about their sin, okay? And it ranges from everything to the, the sins that we might view as minor to major sins. And one of the questions I often get is, I have a friend, a brother, a sibling, a family member, somebody I know who professes to be a Christian, and yet they are in a, a, a homosexual relationship, okay? That's often a question that's given to me. How do I speak to them about that? How do I speak to them about that? And you know what we often do? We just avoid it. Like, that's too complicated, so let's just not go there. All right, but I tell you, in one sense, it's not that complicated, and here's why. You see, if, if we're viewing sin as the Bible describes it, we ought to view it like a cancer that's hiding deep within the heart. And if you had a friend who had a cancer, right, and this cancer was going to kill them if left untreated, and it was just bringing them kind of uh, to that point where, where they were ultimately going to die because of the cancer within them. And they were unaware of it, but you know what? You could see it, and you perceived it, and it was just obvious to you. And you saw it. Wouldn't it be your responsibility to speak to your brother or sister in Christ about it? Wouldn't they consider you a messenger of God if they were brought to repentance? And, and through you came the message of life. Or wouldn't you be considered negligent and complicit if you didn't speak to your brother and sister in Christ about the cancer that was hidden deep within them? That's the nature of sin. And it's every sin. It's any sin. But godly rebuke is what Jesus exhorts his hearers to in this passage. If you see another brother and sister in Christ in sin, you ought to rebuke them. Godly rebuke, wise rebuke, but rebuke nonetheless. The only way to love one another concerning sin is to rebuke. And then one more thing that Jesus mentions here, forgiving one another. You see, picking up in verse 3, Jesus says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, when I first read these four verses and I got to the end of the text, I thought, wait a second, it seems like Jesus has just changed course, okay? He began talking about how serious and how grave and how urgent is our sin. But then he gets to the end and he says, well, listen, if, they, if a person sins against you like a bunch of times in a day, forgive them, just let it go, right? And it, it seems as if he has totally moved away from the seriousness of sin, and now sin is not that big of a deal at all, okay? It's not what Jesus is saying, but you might get the inclination. And you know, Jesus is not simply saying seven times in a day, forgive seven times. Jesus uses the, the number seven to depict the, the picture of completeness, right? So Jesus essentially saying to his hearers, as often as a brother or sister in Christ sins against you in a day, forgive them. 
And if it's seven or if it's a hundred, okay? That's why in Matthew chapter 18, when Peter, having heard these words of Jesus, later in Matthew 18, he says, Jesus, how, how often should we forgive a brother in Christ? Should we do it seven times? And you remember what Jesus says? Peter, not seven times. Seven times, 70 times, okay? You do the math, 490 times in a day. 490 times, forgive your brother. If she, he should sin against you and he should repent of his sin, forgive him of that sin, okay? Now, I have to say, I, I think, first of all, I am amazed at how often I hear this phrase out of other Christians' mouths, okay? I'm amazed when I hear, I know it's wrong, I just can't forgive that person, okay? I know it's wrong, I just can't forgive that person. Jesus is saying, if they come to you and repent, that you must forgive them. And I know that there are some sins that are, that are more damaging than others. There are some that are really hard to get over. And yet even those sins, Jesus exhorts us, when your brother and sister in Christ come and they repent to forgive them. But I tell you, I, I have heard people say, I cannot forgive them over some of the most small and petty things. Uh, I, I made them a meal and they never wrote me a thank you note. I can never forgive them. Okay, I've heard that. I know you may chuckle. I've heard that. I can never forgive them. First of all, I don't know if you need to forgive them. <laughs> There's nothing they need to apologize for. But second of all, if they're asking for forgiveness, forgive them. You see, I think the way that we hold grudges against one another, we would look like fools if we were Jesus and Matthew in Matthew 18, or Jesus and Peter in Matthew 18. Okay? Because this is what the conversation would have looked like. Jesus, do we really need to forgive seven times in a day? Jesus says, yes. Peter, good observation, but not just seven. Seven times 70, right? And there we would be standing. Well, Jesus, but what about, you know, if that person that we made a meal for didn't write a thank you note? Do we really need to forgive them? Okay. Or I, I, I call them and they never return my call. Do I really need to forgive them? Come on, right? Jesus exhorts us concerning the seriousness of sin, and he calls believers and brothers and sisters in Christ to rebuke one another, and when one repents of sin, to forgive them. And not to forgive them with our words, not just to act like we forgive them, but to actually forgive one another. And in, in closing here, I'll tell you why that's important. I just brought up the idea, is Jesus moving away from the seriousness of sin, and is he kind of coming off of that idea and making sin to be more easy, okay, or not as big of a deal. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. As a matter of fact, the forgiveness that he mentions at the end of this passage also emphasizes how serious and urgent sin is. You see, serious sin requires a serious solution. Serious sin requires a serious solution. If sin is a cancer that is hidden in our frame, if it's rooted in the recesses of our heart, if it's crouching at our door waiting to devour us, if it is more lethal than a giant stone that is hung around our neck, if it is truly as serious as Jesus describes it in Luke chapter 17, then it requires an even greater, more serious and powerful solution. And if our Jesus has the power not only to pay the penalty for our sin, but to give us His Spirit to do away with the bondage of sin 
and the confusion and delusion of sin. If in Him we have the forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed, every sin we do commit, and every sin we will commit, then we ought to let our words and our actions declare seven times, seventy times the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. Every day ought we to declare the glorious solution to the serious of Godward rebellion. You see how that works? It's very simple. We ought to forgive one another if God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us for our sins. And so the way we ought to engage our brothers and sisters in Christ is with regard to the serious nature of sin, not leading into temptation, rebuking one another when we recognize sin in our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then when godly repentance comes, being fully willing again and again and again to offer forgiveness. For God offers us forgiveness through His Son, Christ Jesus, again and again and again and again. We go before Him, declaring His forgiveness. We do that for one another every day of our lives as a standing symbol, a visible sign of the forgiveness of sins which has been purchased by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our forgiveness every day, a hundred times a day, our forgiveness takes very seriously our sin and it points our brothers and sisters to the forgiveness that has been purchased through Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you please join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for these words from our Lord and Savior in Luke chapter 17. We ask, Lord God, that you might convict our hearts, that we would resonate with the Puritans who said, an ounce of sin is worse for my soul than 10,000 pounds of suffering. And so we ask our Father that having seen the serious nature of sin, knowing that sin brings us ultimate death, we ask that you would convict us of that sin and that you would then give us rest in our hearts as we depend upon the work of Jesus. Knowing by faith that he has gone before us and that he has suffered the death that we deserve and he has taken upon himself our sin and that He has given Himself, His body, His blood, broken and poured out for us, that we might be forgiven. And so, Father, we ask that You would burden our hearts to forgive one another, not holding a grudge, but always forgiving, that we would demonstrate the mercy that we've received, being merciful first and foremost to those who are of the body of believers, and then demonstrating that mercy as we go forth from here. 
We love you. We ask that your spirit would work in our hearts, continuing that work of sanctification as you make us more and more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you. It is in your name we pray.